My name is Chris Croner, and I'm on the media team here at King's Cross Church. You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. We are working our way through the entire Bible during 2023 in a sermon series called The Story. For more information about our church or to find resources related to the story, visit kingscross.org. Here, if you've been around for a while, then you know that one of the things I like to tell you fairly often is that the Bible's not about you. Uh, and I, I, I want to do that because consistently what I see is that very often people come to the Bible and use it kind of as a self-help manual or as a collection of like best life practices. And sometimes what can happen is people zoom really past, fast, really fast past Jesus uh, in our kind of their hunt for themselves. And I, I'm constantly wanting to push back on that and make sure that you slow down and that you see who God is and what he has done for us through the work of his son, and that only then are you considering how that applies to your life so you can, can change that because the Bible isn't about you, it's about him. And so if that frustrates you some and you feel like, you know what, every now and then I just like to come in and hear a good sermon about me, well, this morning is going to be encouraging to you because we have arrived at the book of Judges in our study of the story, this year-long series through the Bible that we're doing. And Judges is about you. And so if you've been craving that, this morning is your morning. The book of Judges takes place over a period of roughly about 300 years, depending on where you date the Exodus. Um, But it's about 300 years, and it is jam-packed full of compelling stories. So, for example, there's a king in chapter 3, who is so obese that his assassin's dagger gets lost in his fat rolls. Chapter 4 has both a very inspiring female military commander and another woman um, who drives a tent stake through a dude's temple while he's taking a nap. We read in Judges about Gideon's famous fleece and Samson's famous hair in chapters 6 and 16. There's a man who cuts his concubine into 12 pieces And another man whose tragic vow to God results in him having to murder his own daughter. There's a drunken mob intent on sodomizing a man to death. And a ruler who meets his own death when a woman drops a millstone on his head. Like if you're somebody who doesn't read the Bible because you think it's boring, Judges is your book. It is not boring. On the timeline of biblical history, Judges fills the gap between, initials, uh, between Israel's initial conquering of the promised land and the leadership of a man named Joshua and their eventual uh, crowning of their first human king, a man named Saul. Judges is taking place between these two things. And over these several hundred years, God raises up judges who act like we hear judge and we think courtroom, but Judges in the Bible, they, they serve as more like military commanders than administrators, if you will. They serve regionally, so they're, they're not covering the whole geography of where all 12 tribes in Israel live, but they're serving in specific regional areas. And God raises them up to deliver Israel from very specific threats at specific times. And so the names and the stories of these 12 judges are recorded in chapters 3 through 16. And it's because there are 12 of them that I will say confidently to you that Judges is about you. 
Because the number 12 in the Bible very often is symbolic of the totality of all of God's people. We see this in Israel. There are 12 patriarchs who father the 12 tribes that represent all of God's people. In the New Testament, we see that the church, the new uh, uh, gathering of God's people is represented and founded on the work of 12 apostles. When Jesus feeds the 5,000, they gather up the leftovers and there are 12 baskets showing that he is sufficient to provide for the needs of all God's people. We're going to get to the end of the story in Revelation. We'll find the tree of life and the new heaven and the new earth and it bears 12 kinds of fruit. So very often what you see in biblical narratives is that God uses 12s to illustrate truths that are applicable to all of his people across all time and geography. And so it is not a coincidence, I think, that there are 12 judges that are recorded in this historical book that we call Judges. Rather, I think the fact that there are 12 of them is this kind of flashing neon sign to us that says, hey, Judges is typical of all of God's people across time and geography. And so the truths that we find in Judges are truths about you and I as well. The warnings that God gives to Israel in Judges are warnings to us as well. The hope that Israel finds in Judges is our hope as well. Chapters 1 and 2 of the book serve as something of an introduction. And chapter 2 would function in our day as something like a hyperlink that you could click on and it would open up and expand down into the gory details of everything that happens between chapters 3 and 23. And so what I want to do is use kind of a, an in-depth look at chapter 2 as a way to show you these three truths about your life and my life that are expanded on in great detail in the rest of the book. So three truths about our lives that Judges reveals to us. The first is this. Judges shows us the pervasive nature of our sin. It's going to hold up a mirror and, and show us this kind of pervasive nature of, of not just generic sin, but of our sin. Follow along as I read Judges uh, 2, beginning at verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. As a note, uh, this is clearly a pre-incarnate Jesus. Uh, sometimes theologians call that a Christophany. The angel of the Lord here is speaking in the first person about acts that have already been attributed to God himself. So he says, I brought you up. I swore. I said. And so this is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, speaking on behalf of all of the Godhead, and he's speaking to Israel. So I said, you shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you've done? Verse 3. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. 
And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Now, what had they not done? What disobedience warranted this type of response from God? Well, if you back up into chapter 1, and we won't read all these verses, but if you looked at Judges 1 and you read through uh, verses 27 to 36... It says that Israel failed to drive out the inhabitants of the promised land that God had given to them. So, for example, verse 27, it says, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bashin and its villages. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. And on and on it goes. Six times in ten verses, it says they did not drive out the people in the land. So they had conquered the land... Kind of. God had commanded them to totally destroy all of the people in all of the cities in all of the land. And they kind of did it, more or less. And their partial disobedience, their partial obedience was disobedience. Six of the twelve tribes are mentioned by name. Half obedience is not obedience. Half obedience is disobedience. This is one of the ways that you'll be tempted to sin as well, is to accept or maybe just to simply resign yourself to partial obedience. So you read through the scriptures. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You say, I love God. So, well, what about that neighbor part? I love God. Okay, well, do not neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some. Well, you know, we go as often as we can. we got a lot going on. Make disciples of all nations. Not really my calling. That's somebody else's, you know, the whole mission thing is just not really for me. You will be my witnesses. Ah, it's not my gifting. Evangel- I just don't, you know, evangelism, uh, there's some people that, you know, Pastor Josh is really good at that. He, I think he has it covered for the whole King's Cross. Pray without ceasing. I forget. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You don't know my wife. She's kind of a lot. It's a pervasive nature of sin. And what it's going to do is it's going to try to convince you that partial obedience is good enough. But if you read through the Bible, it doesn't seem like God looks at it that way. Keep going, verse 6. Joshua dismissed the people. The people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Hereth, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, why wouldn't the new generation know the work that the Lord had done for Israel? Because the old generation didn't tell them. That's why. This is a sin of omission. 
of not doing what the Lord has said to do. First was a sin of partial obedience. Now there's just a sin of, of just not doing it, a sin of omission. As an aside, can I encourage you that if you're an older saint and you lament the spiritual state of kids these days, volunteer to work with them. KCK, KCY. We tell you we need volunteers at Philip Simmons Schools or for FCA. Work with them. You tell them. I'm 48. Makes me a Gen Xer. If I'm looking down below me at other generations and I shake my head at millennials or Gen Z and I say, oh, you know, kids these days are drifting from God. They're drifting from the church. They're sacrificing God's principles and God's plans on the altar of culture. It's my responsibility to do something about that. that that's my, if that's my burden, right? That my generation has to tell the next generation. And Israel just hadn't done it. They just omitted passing along what it was that God had done for Israel. This is one of the ways that the pervasive nature of sin is going to rear its ugly head in your life. It's going to just come along and say, you know, just wait. You'll have plenty of time for all that God stuff later. You know, you're just really busy. Somebody else will do that. You don't have to do that. This is sin of omission. It's just benign neglect. All it takes is a lack of intentionality to just do nothing. In his brilliant book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis imagines a series of letters between a senior demon and his up-and-coming nephew. In one letter, the older demon is advising his younger demon nephew on how to attack and how to tempt his human subject to try to keep them away, keep his subject away from God. And the older demon writes this, The great thing is to prevent his doing anything. As long as he does not convert it into action, it does not matter how much he thinks about this new repentance. No amount of piety in his imagination and his affections will harm us if we can keep it out of his will. God had specifically and repeatedly commanded Israel to make sure that all he had done for them was passed along to the next generation. They come to Jesus in the New Testament and they say, what's the greatest commandment? He quotes Deuteronomy 6, 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know what Deuteronomy 6, 7 says? It's, like it's basically the same breath. Deuteronomy 6, 7 says, you shall teach these things diligently to your children. Knowing the right thing to do, knowing what God has commanded you to do, and not doing it is sin. And it's every bit as much sin as a sin of commission, of doing what God has said not to do, which is exactly what's summarized in verses 11 to 15. Verse 11, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. Baals are the false gods of the people who they didn't drive out. Phrase is repeated seven times in the next 11 chapters. The people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. These are sins of commission. 
Verse 12, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. God had saved them. He had blessed them. He had given them some success, as he had has many of us. And yet, the pervasive nature of their sin remained. As one commentator on the book of Judges said, yes, the people enter the land to take it, but the land ends up taking them. Here's the thing. The pervasive nature of your sin means that if you just kind of drop your spiritual gears down into neutral, you will drift away from God, not towards him. You will not just accidentally coast your way towards the Lord. You have to be intentional about it. The great Puritan theologian John Owen said, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. Have to do this on purpose. And I assure you that your enemy does not care how you sin, only that you sin. Any old kind of sin will do. Partial disobedience, fine. Sin of omission, okay, just don't, just don't do anything. Sin of commission, I'll just go ahead and do it. It'll be all right. Any kind of sin will work. Genesis 4, God told Adam's son Cain that sin was crouching at the door. And Paul writes to the church in Romans 5, and he says that we all now, as sons and daughters of Adam, have inherited this same pervasive sin nature that invades our hearts and our minds and our lives, just as it did with Israel in the time of the judges. It's a pervasive nature of our sin. Second, Judges also shows us the predictable cycle of our sin. The predictable cycle of it. Verses 16 to 23, they, they serve as a summary of this cycle uh, of sin that happens, and then it's detailed for the rest of the book. Look there with me, verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. And here's the cycle. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But, verse 19, whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them. 
whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Roughly 300 years. This is the cycle. The people rebel. God gets angry. Oppression results. Then the people repent. So God raises up a leader. And through the work of that leader, some deliverance, some salvation comes. Time passes. The leader dies. The people get comfortable. They repent, rebel again. Is this not the same cycle that we struggle with today? We rebel against God. We choose our way and our will. think we know better than the God of the universe. Our sin puts distance between us and God. It, 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 it thins our relationship with him out. His holiness and his justice, his righteousness can't abide our sin. The consequences of our sin or Sometimes the consequences of other people's sin against us begin to manifest themselves, results in all matter of pain and brokenness and dysfunction. So we cry out to God, perhaps repenting for our own sin or asking him for help to save us from the consequences of other people's sin against us. And God being gracious and loving and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, he provides some measure of relief for us. Maybe a person that comes along to help or some blessing of some kind that surely is attributable to God. He gives us respite. He saves us, if you will. And then some time goes by, the threat wanes. Our anxiety isn't quite as high. Our stress is lowered. We get comfortable again, peaceful again. And here comes our old friend sin knocking again at the door. And we decide to do things our way again and we rebel and this cycle just goes and goes. It's a line in a Counting Crows song. It says, in a house where regret is a carousel ride, we're spinning and spinning and spinning. Isn't sometimes that our life? That in a house where the predictable pattern of sin is a carousel ride, and we just spin and spin and spin in this cycle again and again. And it is a cycle. Judges covers a period of time longer than the United States of America has been a country. The first generation sinned by not going into the land and beginning to conquer it. The second generation sinned by being in the land but not finishing conquering it. And every generation after that, repeated this pattern again and again. And if you read all the way to the end of the book of Judges, what you will find is that the book ends without repentance and without resolution. The very last verse of the book, Judges 21-25. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, or in her own eyes. You want to see, by the way, what it looks like when a culture decides that, you know what, hey, I'll just do my thing and you do your thing. And, and like, who are you to tell me? I'll just live my truth. And you, you read Judges. See how that goes for cultures and nations that decide everybody can just do what they want in their own eyes. It's not pretty. 
There's no king in Israel. So everybody just does what they think is right and leads to disaster. And what they're going to see is that as they look back, the great faith of the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it wasn't enough for Israel. And when they were in the wilderness and God had established the priesthood and the system of sacrifices, it wasn't enough to ultimately deliver Israel from sin. And even now, here, these judges are raised up. And sure, they deliver Israel from specific threats at specific times in specific parts of the land, but it wasn't enough to totally deliver them. In the books that follow in the weeks ahead, what Israel is going to learn in Samuel and Kings and Chronicles is that there's no king who can possibly be enough for them. And even after that, when the prophets are raised up and they speak the very words of God to the people, even the prophets' work won't be enough. And ultimately, that is the overarching truth that we find in the book of Judges as we read through this discouraging, downward spiral of Israel's descent into apostasy and faithlessness. It shows us, third, the perfect Savior we need. We have this pervasive nature that is in us of sin. We have this predictable cycle in the way that our lives work because of sin. And just like Israel, what it leads us to is to look around for a perfect Savior that it is so obvious we need. If you're reading along with our devotional plan Surely you saw this week how utterly flawed these judges were as individuals. I mean, the most famous of them is Samson. Right? If you don't have a church background, you probably know of something of Samson and Delilah. Samson is the most famous, but he's an absolute disaster. He marries the Philistine woman, which was against the counsel of his parents and had been expressly forbidden by God. He's prone to emotional outbursts that lead to extreme violence. His actions are very often driven by his own sexual appetites. He's a liar and an oath breaker for the vows that he made to God. And he's the most famous. Now God uses him powerfully. God uses him him as a judge over Israel for 20 years, but he is an imperfect, temporary, limited Savior. God uses Samson's life as a crescendo of a book that points us to the perfect Savior we need. If you went all the way back to the first judge, Othniel, God will show that he could save through all the people. Judges 3.9 says that all the people cried out to God and he raised up a deliverer. Through Deborah, the fourth judge, God showed that he could save through many. In Judges 4, Deborah gathers 10,000 men to go into battle on behalf of all Israel. In the story of Gideon, The fifth judge, we see that God can save through a few. God whittles Gideon's army down to just 300 men. And then through the twelfth judge, Samson, we see that God can save his people through the work of just one. 
But the problem in Judges is that the perfect one had yet to be raised up. The perfect Savior we need, however, would be raised up. We get to the New Testament and we find one who is anointed by God to serve not one region or one tribe, but in fact the whole earth and all tribes, tongues, nations, and people. We find in Jesus one who never broke his vows to God, who never failed to follow all of God's laws, never committed a sin of omission where he failed to do something he should have done, never committed a sin of commission where he did something God said not to do, never even sinned by partial obedience, but fully obeyed God. We find in Jesus one who's given the authority to judge not just Israel, but the living and the dead. We find in the New Testament a God who is no less angry over our sin, and yet his anger is poured out on his son Jesus on the cross. And Jesus, rather than the people of God, becomes oppressed. And he gets punished in the place of the people of God. He becomes the recipient of the wrath of God in our place for our sins. In Jesus, we find finally the perfect Savior that we need. The question is, are you looking to Him? Because friends, I would encourage you that God in His great love and mercy will at times give you relief from or provide some rescue from. He will will lead you into seasons of respite from hardship and oppression, from anxiety and fear, pain and loss, grief or lack or restlessness. But isn't it your experience that they're all imperfect temporary solutions? Imperfect temporary saviors. They are grace. Thanks be to God for sure. James 1.18 tells us that every good and perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father. Yes and amen. But they are imperfect temporary Measures of grace. If you're someone who is looking for a solution, can I just be honest with you that no church, no leader, spiritual leader, political leader, social leader, no job, no vacation, no friend, no blessing, no deliverer of any kind can ever truly save you. Only Jesus can do that. He is the only Perfect one. And Judges reminds us of that painfully. And it pleads with us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and to look to him and him alone to be delivered from, to be saved from, not only our cares and worries and burdens in this life, but in fact, for all of eternity. Let's pray. Father, I confess to you that all too often in my weakness I'm prone to receive your good gifts, to drift back into comfort, take my eyes off of you till the next crisis arises. Would you forgive us when we do that? Remind us that 
A salvation that comes through Christ. It's not merely an eternity issue, but a now issue. The peace comes not only eternally, but can come now. The joy will be ours not only eternity, but can be ours now. And if there are those among us this morning who have yet to trust in you as their deliverer, as their savior, I pray that you would grant them through the work of the Spirit the faith to believe even now. Save them from themselves. The false deliverers that they look to. For those of us who have already done that, would you remind our hearts this morning and encourage us that even though people and systems and churches and nations might let us down, you never will. You never will. And so we look to you anew this morning, our great God and Savior. In Christ's name, amen. My name's Chip. I'm the lead pastor here at King's Cross Church. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope that you're growing in the gospel as we work our way through the story. Take a moment to subscribe and you'll get each week's episode automatically. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.